Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 23 to 36 and 51. It is slightly different than what is printed in the worship folder. Then he said to them all, If you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their crosses daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in the glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. pray together. Gracious God, we invite you now in the midst of all our distraction or fear or concern, in the midst of all our hope and joy, in the midst of the ways that we are looking forward to a beautiful Sunday of entertainment and relaxation or the ways that we feel crushed and burdened because we know halfway around the world there are men and women and children 
hiding for their lives in Ukraine. We come to this moment focused on our own lives and the ways that we've succeeded and done things well and gotten to the place where we want to be and the ways in which we wonder how things will work out and if we'll ever get to that place. We come to this moment affluent. We're not sure how we're going to pay the next month's rent bill. We come to this moment connected to one another in community and feeling alive. We come to this moment feeling alone or isolated, angry or bitter, addicted or depressed. However we come to this very moment, help us to see that you know us. You see us in all our complexity and on all our contradictions, in all our beauty and all our brokenheartedness. And your response is to love us, to move toward us, to give yourself to us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so now we pray that you do perhaps the most difficult thing of all, and help us to believe that that's actually true, that you love us this much. We invite you to teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed. And send us out to be your very hands and feet of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I remember this hot, beautiful summer day on San Diego Harbor when my wife Florence's dad had just gotten this fishing boat. It was a good-sized fishing boat. He had gone in as partners with his buddy Jerry, who was also newly retired. Jerry had been in the Navy for decades, traveled the world, been on big ships. So, of course, Jerry knows how to captain this small fishing vessel. I started to question that as soon as we pulled away from the bait barge and took a wrong turn toward the submarine base at Point Loma. And let me just tell you, the Navy guys on the ship with the 50 caliber pointed at us let us know really quickly that we were not welcome on that particular part of land. So we made it out of there with an adventure to tell. We get around the end of Point Loma and we begin fishing. We're out past the kelp beds, which is where you can find some really good fish. And all of a sudden we see it. First, it looks like a pole sticking out of the water. And then it's the conning tower. And then it's the body of a football field long Navy submarine that had just come up next to us and started getting underway. We felt like a flea sitting next to a dinosaur in terms of the scale of the size and power of what we'd witnessed. And as this thing came up out of the depths and surprised all of us, Jerry, who knew the Navy and knew the vessels, said, we need to get out of here now because as soon as that thing gets up to full speed, its sheer power alone will create a double wave that could sink our boat. And so we got out of there. Went from surprise to fear because of the power of this thing could sink us in a minute. We just read about the transfiguration which shows up in multiple of the Gospels. And Peter, James, and John, some of Jesus' closest friends, went with him on a camping trip to the top of a mountain. They did not expect for this story to happen. They thought they were getting away to a quiet place to get some rest and refreshment to pray together. And all of a sudden, they're confronted with raw, dazzling, blinding power. 
And it says they're terrified. But rather than sinking them, this power will actually save them. The story of transfiguration reveals who Jesus really is. It's like taking the veil off, peeling one layer away so you can see more deeply who we're talking about when we talk about God. We see in his dazzling, powerful, brilliant beauty. He uses all of that not to sink you, not to get away from you, but to move toward you and rescue you. Let's take a look at that this morning as we consider who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how we connect with him, all through the lens of transfiguration. First, in, we're going to go a little bit out of order here, but I'll call out the, uh, the verses. The verses are the small numbers before each of the paragraphs. So if you're following along, you'll know where we are as we go. In verse 28, it says, now. It starts, now about eight days later. So the question is, what's just happened? And Jesus has just said, as we see, some will not taste death until they see the coming kingdom of God. And throughout the Gospel of Luke and many of the Gospels, generally the first half is repeated this chorus, this refrain of, who is Jesus? I mean, Herod, the Roman ruler, is asking, who is Jesus? Earlier, the people are asking, who is this Jesus? Just previous to this passage, Jesus asked his followers, who do the crowds say that I am? And they said, well, some of them say that you're Elijah, some say that you're one of the prophets, but we think you're the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would come to rescue the entire world. And so now, Peter, James, and John are invited up onto this mountain with Jesus, and you begin to remember Moses met with God on Mount Sinai. Elijah met with God on Mount Horeb. The greats of the tradition of the faith had met with God on a mountain and now Jesus says, come with me up to the mountain. And the crescendo music begins to build suspense. They ask the question, who is Jesus? And they're up on the mountain praying and in an instant, Jesus seems to be transformed. His appearance is changed. It's dazzling. And he's talking with Moses and Elijah. Moses stands as the figure of the lawgiver, the Ten Commandments, the one who brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt when he said to Pharaoh, let my people go. He got them out of slavery into the promised land, gave them the law of God so they can have the way to operate as human beings reflecting the glory of God together. He stands as the law. Elijah, one of the chief prophets, a prophet was not merely someone who could tell the future in the name of God. Usually their role was to speak on behalf of God to the people of God, to call them back to God's purposes for their own good and the good of the world. So it's like you have the team captains of the law and the prophets standing there talking with Jesus. It's like a Hall of Fame moment. I don't know if you watched the basketball, the NBA All-Star game last Sunday, but at halftime they had the 75 best players of all time under the same roof. And you have like Michael Jordan standing there with everybody else and you go, there's just like, this is the Hall of Fame. This is the Pantheon. That's what we're looking at here at the top of this mountain. Or as they would say at the Academy Awards, you know, all this talent in just one room. Jesus is standing there as the new Moses. Moses. 
as the new Elijah. We'll get into that in a moment. And this meeting is about to end. It says when they were about to leave him. And you could sense Peter getting tense. Peter kind of confused, maybe overwhelmed, not sure exactly what to say. I don't know if you've ever been in a moment where you were under pressure and your brain told you, like, you're like, I don't know what to say, but your brain tells you just get out there and say something. And so you say something and then you're like, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean to say that. Can I take it back? I wonder if that's what Peter's doing right here. Because Peter interrupts a conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And he says, it's great that we're here. Let's set up three tents, three dwellings. Basically saying, let's keep the party going. You don't have to go home. You can get a guest room. We'll get a room here. We're going to stay. That's his great idea. Let's hold on to this moment. And part of what I think he's insinuating is, this is awesome. We knew Jesus was special. We've heard him teach in a way that no one's ever taught. We've seen him heal people with just his words. He's provided food for thousands of people from just a few loaves and a few fishes. He's changed water into wine at a wedding and made sure the joy did not run out. He's amazing. But we didn't realize he was actually on the same team with Moses and Elijah and deserves to be like at that level. That's what Peter's probably thinking. And in that moment, Peter is interrupted by the voice of God himself. Peter's going, this is really awesome. We're glad that Jesus is on the same level as all these other prophets and the law and all these good things. And God's voice comes from heaven and interrupts him and corrects him and says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Jesus is not merely one other teacher among a great group of wonderful teachers of world history. Jesus is not merely one prophet among many other prophets throughout the world. He's not merely one who can keep the law or give the law or pay attention to the law among others who have gone before him. He stands uniquely alone as the son of God. That's the claim that scripture makes to you and me. I'll press it even further. There's this dramatic moment where Jesus' closest friends come to him and they talk about all the amazing things they're doing with his power, with his presence. And he says, don't be impressed by that. Let me tell you something that'll make your head spin. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What? He's saying, you think what you're experiencing right now is amazing? I always have been and always will be. I'm infinite. I knew Satan when he was just Lucifer. I saw him when he got kicked out of heaven and he fell like a fireball. Now listen to this. That either puts Jesus far ahead of any other prophet because he is the son of God, telling the truth, or it puts him way behind any other prophet because he's deluded and insane to say things like that. But what he doesn't do is offer you and me some sort of middle ground. And the voice of God comes and says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. He could have said, Jesus is just one of many other great voices, so sometimes listen to Moses, sometimes listen to Elijah, and sometimes sprinkle in some Jesus. But that doesn't work out practically. Because Peter, James, and John would have known their Torah. They would have known what we would call the Old Testament. And they would know that there are places where Moses said that it's okay to stone people to death who had been sinning and polluting the community eth ethically. And where Elijah at one point called down fire upon his enemies to take them out. 
But then Jesus comes and brings the fullest revelation of God's will. And there's a place where Jesus' followers actually encounter some opposition and they say, Jesus, should we call down fire and take them out? And Jesus says, no. The Son of Man has not come to kill and destroy, but to rescue and save all. A new way of being altogether. Moses said it was okay to stone sinners, and so the religious leaders bring to Jesus a woman who was caught in the act of adultery and said, what should we do with her, Jesus, because you know the law says that we should stone her to death. And Jesus says, whoever has never sinned, go ahead and throw the first stone. A new way of being in this world altogether, a way that's marked by grace and forgiveness and mercy that doesn't minimize our brokenness, doesn't ignore it, but actually overcomes it with forgiveness. Jesus is not one more prophet trying to get closer to God. Jesus is the God that all the prophets were trying to get close to. N.T. Wright, world-renowned New Testament theologian, puts it this way. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It's either the more devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it's a sham, it's nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. The transfiguration moment confronts that middle ground where you and I are tempted to kind of do a nod and a wave and respectfully give Jesus some sort of ground in our lives just in case while we go on with the rest of the business of running the world. The transfiguration comes to you and me and says you cannot live in the shallows. Either crown him as king or kill him as an imposter, but you can't live in between. Jesus came to reveal who God is to you and me. The invitation is, listen to him. He's the only one that when you listen to his voice and follow him, you become more who you were truly created to be. And when you fail him, he forgives you. Your job won't do that for you. The best relationships in your life try to approach that kind of love. You're not even that gracious toward yourself. How do I know? Because I'm the same way. Listen to him. But it goes further. What did he come to do? Because it says Jesus and Moses and Elijah are getting together. Wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall? When I was in San Francisco, when I first began at the church up there, I was the intern, and I kind of jockeyed for my position to be whenever we had a dignitary come in town. Because the church got kind of big, and we'd have like big speakers and lecturers and leaders come in, and I'd always say, can I pick them up from the airport? Can I pick them up from the airport? What time, what time are they getting picked up? 4 a.m.? I'll be right there. It's great. So I've gotten to sit with and listen to a lot and meet with a lot of people. I mean, there was this one time driving back to the airport at 4 in the morning, and I wanted to be with this person so badly that I drove 40 miles per hour on the freeway just so I could have more time with them. Anyways, one of the things that struck me was, you know, we'd be in the car. Oh, just give me a second, Matt. It's my wife. They got it. Or it's my publicist. Or it's my whoever, my chief of staff or whatever. And I'd get to listen to what they talk to. 
and what they talk about to other people. It's awesome. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are talking. What are they talking about? Luke actually tells us what they were talking about. Verse 31 says, they were talking about his departure. Except the Greek word for departure is actually the word that was used for exodus. Moses led his people from slavery and oppression into freedom and joy. That was called the exodus. Jesus will lead his people from a far more sinister enemy of sin and brokenness and death into freedom and new life. And it will be called his exodus. In other words, with all the power, majesty, glory, and delight that we just described, what does he do with it? He divests himself of it and uses all that power to deal a death blow to death itself. To rescue us in a way that we could never rescue ourselves. That when we look at the pain and the brokenness of this world, we can say that is not going to be the final word because even now God is at work. His exodus. It says in verse 51, that last part that Rita read for us, when the, dra- when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's a critical piece to hold together because it's the opposite of the way the world uses power. Luke 9, the transfiguration story, makes sure to hammer home that Jesus was filled with all power and authority and glory, uniquely the Son of God, and immediately his response to all of that power is to start walking toward his crucifixion on behalf of the world. Not amassing power for his own gain, not stockpiling resources for the people who are closest to him against those others, but rather taking all that he is and all that he has as the son of God and pouring himself out so that we could live. That's why you should listen to him. Not only because he's powerful, but because he's good. What does it look like to connect with him? What does a life of glory look like? Like Nacho Libre, just a little taste of the glory. See what it tastes like. How do you live a life of glory? I'll give you a hint. This world can't teach you. It's upside down, but beautifully right side up. It's downward mobility in which you descend into greatness. So going backward a little bit, in verse 23, the beginning of our passage, it says, then Jesus said to them, well, what just happened before that? Not printed for you, so I'll tell you. What just happened? Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Holy One of God. Okay, that's a loaded statement. Because the people of Israel were waiting for the Messiah. Greek translation, the Christ. English translation, the anointed. Either way, God's person who will come and make all things new, and you are him, Jesus. We can't wait. Buy stock in him. And Jesus immediately says, but the son of man, but I will be rejected. I will suffer. I will be crucified. And three days later, I will rise again. And then in verse 23, he says, so everybody who wants to be with me, 
Here's what you do. If you want to become my followers, let you deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. This is what it looks like to enter into God's fullness. Do you hear how ridiculous that sounds? You're feeling that. It's so ridiculous you kind of want to just reject it out of hand and get on to something else. He can't surely, surely can't mean that. You know, this is no way to start a movement. This is not what you say to attract followers, right? A company comes out, they're going to do their initial public offering, and they're like, no matter how, successfully we, uh, how successful we get, we plan on giving all of our dividends away. No, not investing. On a first date, you know, you say, I just feel like I should be up front with you. I'm really envisioning a life of sacrificially giving myself away. Like, no thank you, check please. Jesus says the kingdom of God is upside down. And that's where life actually is. But think about it for a moment. What, because we're all looking for sort of life, flourishing, wholeness. You might define it differently. There's kind of between three and seven different categories. But as humans, we're all looking for life some way. The question is, where are you looking? Are you even aware of it? Society tells you, you can save your life. You can make a good life by earning more money, which is true if you're living below the poverty line. But once you're above the poverty line, you can put food on the table and all that. Most studies, all studies I'm aware of say it's actually not true. But we believe it. How much is enough? Just a dollar more, just twice as much. I don't know, how much do you got? I need more. You can have a life, you can make a life by amassing more experiences. Be the most interesting person at the party. Then you'll be lovable. Then you'll be somebody. You can have a life. You can make a life by being the top of the stack ranking at your organization or the top of the class by getting another promotion. Then you will have achieved. And then we end up living according to what some sociologists call the duck in the pond phenomenon where you, see a, you ever see a duck going across the pond and they look so relaxed. We're San Diegans, we look so relaxed. And then you put the camera below the water line and you see their little feet going, oh my gosh, I gotta keep up. So relaxed at the top, so frantic inside. Thomas Merton said, theologian said, you can spend your entire life climbing, climbing the ladder of success only to realize it was leaning against the wrong wall the entire time. Or as the old song goes, you get to the top of the mountain and what do you see? There's more mountains to climb. Or as Jesus said, you can gain the whole world and lose your soul. And so we double down. More striving more achieving, more climbing to save our lives. How's that working for you? More anxious, more disconnected, more exhausted, more of that imposter syndrome. That's the weird thing. The more money you make, the more degrees you get, the more you get in the organization, the, oftentimes the more the imposter syndrome sets in and goes, if they really knew how little you knew, they would never listen to you. You become exhausted and anxious. 
You're trying to save your life and you're losing it. And Jesus comes and says, come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now here's the part most of us miss from that invitation. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke. A yoke is an agricultural farmer term. It's what you do to bring two animals together so they can carry a heavy load. Jesus, in his power and authority, in his beauty and dazzling radiance, says, I want to yoke myself to you. You never have to be alone. There are cares and worries and devastating sorrows in this world, and I will be attached to you inseparably. My glory will be your glory. So let's, here's, here's usually where we try to get the off-ramp. Let's try not to find loopholes or find our way out of this really deep, costly calling that he gives us to deny ourselves take up our cross daily and follow him instead let's invite Jesus to teach us how to do it you know what that means it means there's probably something for us to deny maybe it's one of the big isms nationalism the belief that your country, whatever your country may be, has to be the most powerful one to squash all others, and all others are immediately suspect. And Jesus comes and says, my kingdom's not of this world. Your primary allegiance, as important as it is to be a citizen of your country, I love our country. But it's not the primary indicator of my identity. And the odd thing is, the more you realize you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, it actually makes you a better citizen of your own society. It makes you more thirsty for justice, more hungry for integrity, more open to compromising with other people with whom you disagree because you say, as God loves me, I can love these people. But it no longer becomes your primary identity. Or its cousin, militarism. The idea that might makes right. We're seeing this happen right now, but the interesting thing is we're seeing this happen between two countries that aren't us. And so we see how wrong it is. But there are a lot of other countries in this world that go, do you guys see that you do this to other people too? And Jesus came and said, I will not dominate by the sword. My kingdom will be advanced by my love and sacrifice for others. So right now, like, this is going to be equally offensive to everyone. So right now someone's like, yeah, that's great. But then he comes and he says, well, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's about forsaking materialism. The relentless pursuit of more stuff. Because you can gain the world and lose your soul. He invites us to forsake individualism. I don't think I understand, let alone, I, I don't, I'll just say we. I don't think we understand. Like a fish doesn't know what water is because it's always in the water. I don't think we begin to understand what it's like to grow up in a post-enlightenment, individualistic Western society and how that's different than the way most human beings have lived forever. 
but we actually look at ourselves before anybody else and in isolation to anybody else. And so then you end up alone, feeling isolated in a room full of people. When Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? He tells a parable about the farthest outsider you could imagine. The good Samaritan. And, which means your neighbor's everybody. It's this expansive view of what it means to be in community. Oh gosh, it's the harder way to live. But it's the brighter and deeper way to live. He invites us to forsake hedonism. Me first, entertainment, more, more, more. I mean, we live in this beautiful land, San Diego, that's set up for the tourism industry. Isn't it amazing to live in a place where tourists are always hanging out? So you go on your lunch break, and you're at the beach, and some family just flew in from you know, Michigan to be here, and you're like, oh my gosh, I get to do this every day. But with that comes this, you can always get more, you can always do more, you can always have more. Just, are you aware that that does a number on you? And Jesus says, I will fill you with living water. It also means that we have someone to serve. Because the part that was written down that we didn't read, what does Jesus do right before he heads to Jerusalem, to the cross? He comes down from the mountain. And there's a father who is desperate because his boy is shrieking and suffering and in pain. And Jesus moves toward the pain of that boy and the anguish of the father. I think the more that we're exposed to the glory of God, the more we, were, we are open to be exposed to the pain of the people around us. Who are you being called to move toward today? And finally, don't do this alone. I love that Jesus invites James and John and Peter with him up the mountain to see. But the other nine apostles were still at the bottom. You've got to imagine what that reunion must have been like. But the bottom line is they beheld his glory together. This is why we have community groups that meet throughout the week. This is why we come together on Sunday mornings. This is why I rejoice when you are not only connected to me as your pastor, but you're connected to each other as friends. Because the rich, God does something in community that for whatever reason doesn't happen in isolation. So friends, may we behold today the glory of Jesus who uses that glory to rescue us and then live a life that is patterned after that, downward mobility, descending into greatness. In other words, as he gives himself to us, we give ourselves to each other and to this world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray now that you would convince us of your great glory and your love for us. And as we come to this table, we come as hungry people. Would you fill us? Would you bring us closer together and closer to you? Would you renew the face of the earth and use us as your agents of that very renewal? We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.